It is good to be in God's house today, and uh, good to see each and every one of you, and we're looking forward to our uh, time as we gather around the Word of God here together. And uh, so let me invite you to take your Bible and uh, make your way to the book of 2 Samuel. We're in the Old Testament this morning, 2 Samuel chapter number 9, and uh, we're going to look really at this chapter as our text, but just to open up, I'll read uh, verse 1 down through verse number 8. 2 Samuel chapter number 9 and verse 1 down through verse number 8. If you found your place, say amen. amen. All right, you're awake and ready to go. Bible says, And David said, Is there still anyone left of the house of Saul that I may show him kindness for Jonathan's sake? Now there was a servant of the house of Saul whose name was Ziba, and they called him to David. And the king said to him, Are you Ziba? And he said, I am your servant. And the king said, Is there not still someone of the house of Saul that I may show the kindness of God to him? Ziba said to the king, There is still a son of Jonathan. He is crippled in his feet. The king said to him, Where is he? And Ziba said to the king, He is in the house of Machir, the son of Amiel, at Lodibar. Then King David sent and brought him from the house of Machir, the son of Amiel, at Lodibar. And Mephibosheth, the son of Jonathan, son of Saul, came to David and fell on his face and paid homage. And David said, Mephibosheth. And he answered, Behold, I am your servant. And David said to him, Do not fear, for I will show you kindness for the sake of your father, Jonathan, And I will restore to you all the land of Saul your father, and you shall eat at my table always. And he paid homage and said, What is your servant that you should show regard for a dead dog such as I? The title of the message this morning is The King's Grace. The King's Grace. Now one of the great aspects of the Bible is that we find the common message Uh, that runs through the whole of Scripture. We find in the Old Testament you'll see uh, narratives and types and shadows and things which point us to uh, viewing salvation uh, as God has given it through the whole of the Bible. And all of Scripture is divinely woven together to communicate to us the work of God towards sinful men. Now, even in the Old Testament narrative accounts, we find pictures and examples, I guess you could say, of God's overall working towards us. And in today's passage, we see a great picture of grace and what it is. And that's what I want to communicate to us as we expound this text and look at it together, and uh, we'll look at some passages in the New Testament as well. But by and large, I want you to see from this passage the great work of grace that God gives to us as sinners. Now, what is grace? Grace is the unmerited, the undeserved favor of God. It is something you can't earn. It is something that is given out of God's good pleasure. It is getting what you cannot attain yourself and do not deserve yourself. You know, when a person works an eight-hour day and receives a fair day's pay for his time... That's a wage. That is something that they have worked for. That is something they have earned. If a person competes uh, against an opponent and receives a trophy for his performance, that's a prize. It's something they have earned. If a person receives an appropriate recognition for his 
long service or high achievements. That's an award. That's something that they have earned. But when we think of what but grace is, grace is not something that we can earn. It's not something that we can work for. It's not something that we deserve. Whether you realize it or not, friend, every single one of us here today are in need of the grace of God. Whether you realize it or not, you're in need of the grace of God. And may I say to you that once you have experienced the grace of God, it genuinely and truly transforms your life. You're not the same. You're not the same when you come to know the grace of God. And as a Christian, I think sometimes it's easy to forget about the depth of God's grace towards us as sinners. We forget about how deep and how magnificent, how glorious the grace of God is to us. I believe His grace, it ought to be the chief motivating factor for all that we do for Him, for our worship, for our service, for everything in our Christian life. So I ask you this morning, if you're a Christian, does God's grace still affect you in this way? Does God's grace still touch your heart? Now, in our text, to give you background, and we'll look at what's going on in uh, context of this passage, at this point in Israel's history, we see that David is the reigning king, and we're probably pretty familiar with King David. He's uh, probably the most notable king of Israel's past, uh, alongside that of his son Solomon. Uh, and so as David here is the king, we find that in, ver- in chapter 8, David has reigned over Israel in verse 15. He's administered justice and equity to all of his people, so his reign is ongoing, it's established, and it's it's certified, it's solidified among all of Israel that David is indeed the king over Israel. And what we find is that as king, David in this passage before us shows a kindness that only he could show as a king. He shows a kindness to a man that did not deserve it and did not earn it. And this man's name is Mephibosheth. Anybody name their son Mephibosheth? Anybody met a Mephibosheth? That's not much, not not a common name, but this is what this man's name is uh, in the days of Israel. His name was Mephibosheth. And in this kindness, King David extends to Mephibosheth. We see somewhat of a picture, a parallel of the great kindness that God has expressed towards us as sinful people. So I want to bring this to our attention here this morning in our notes. Notice with me in our notes, number one, we point out our first heading this morning, the promise for Mephibosheth. There's a promise concerning Mephibosheth that Mephibosheth doesn't even really know about yet. And this promise is one that includes great blessing and great privilege, a great change that will come to his life. And notice with me about this promise is that it is rooted, firstly, in David's covenant with Jonathan. It is rooted in David's covenant with Jonathan. Now, it's important to remember that before we get to our chapter here in 2 Samuel chapter 9, that the former king of Israel was who? It was King Saul, right? And if you study the life of Saul, you see that he had a lot of ups and downs and eventually just went... Uh, spiraling out of control. He was full of jealousy and selfishness, and he disobeyed God. He was not a man after God's own heart. 
So God told Saul that the kingdom would be taken from him and given to someone who was actually after his own heart. And that's what we know David as, right? In the Old Testament and in the New Testament, we see it quoted in Acts chapter 13 and verse 22 that David was a man after God's own heart who would fulfill his will. And so David began gaining attention and fame in Israel, even under the reign of Saul. And this made Saul jealous, and he wanted David dead. He did not want the threat of David to his throne. But there's a problem back in the days of Saul with David and with Saul and his own family. David is best friends with the son of King Saul. And that son's name was Jonathan. And though Jonathan's father... The king sought to kill David and take his life, which was his best friend, the best friend of Saul's son. Their friendship was stronger than Saul's delusional thinking. Jonathan knew that Saul was in the wrong. Jonathan knew that his dad was doing something that was not right in trying to kill his friend David. So their friendship was so strong, it's as if they were one. They were so close. The Bible describes their friendship in 1 Samuel 18 and verse 3. Then Jonathan made a covenant with David, and he loved him as his own soul. He loved him as his own soul. That's that's how close they're knit in their friendship. And I believe good godly friendships are necessary for us in our Christian life. Now, the Lord already ordained that David would be the next king, and Saul would soon be out of the picture. It's just a matter of time. But before David was officially recognized as king, he and Jonathan made a very serious covenant, a promise together. It was an agreement between them. And we'll read it for a moment. If you'll go backwards in your Bible to 1 Samuel chapter number 20 for a moment, turn with me to 1 Samuel 20 and verse 14 through verse number 17 for a moment. This is where Jonathan is conversing with David about what the intentions of Saul are, and Jonathan already knows that, uh, that, that David is supposed to be the next king. But we come to chapter 20 and verse 14 through verse 17 just for a moment, and we see this covenant that they make together. We read, If I am still alive, show me the steadfast love of the Lord that I may not die. And do not cut off your steadfast love from my house forever. When the Lord cuts off every one of the enemies of David from the face of the earth. And Jonathan made a covenant with the house of David saying, May the Lord take vengeance on David's enemies. And Jonathan made David swear again by his love for him. For he loved him as he loved his own soul. So what is this covenant, this promise about? It's about when David takes the kingship. He's asking David, if I'm still alive, have mercy on me as Saul's descendant, but also on my own family, on my own descendants. Now, why why is this so important to Jonathan? Why does he ask David to not cut off his steadfast love from his house forever? Why is that such a thing? Because it was often customary in those ancient times for a new king to kill off any that would be a rival to the throne, to kill off any that would rival the throne, particularly the family of those, the one who was the former king. 
Now, you'll find biblical examples of this. We think of Elimelech in Judges 9.5 and Solomon in 1 Kings 2.25, Basha and Elah and Omri and Jehu and Ataliah. All those references where there was an uh, execution, if you would, to those who were a threat to the throne of who was king. And in this case, guess who was supposed to be next in line? It was supposed to be Jonathan customarily, right? Because he's the son of Saul. And if not Jonathan, then one of his heirs. But Jonathan knew that God had specifically chosen David. It wasn't going to be of the lineage of Saul anymore. It was going to be David, the man after God's own heart. So David swears here to show the steadfast love of the Lord to Jonathan and his family line. And as we come down our text of 2 Samuel 9, we see that the heir to which this covenant would see its fruition and played out, is Jonathan's son, Mephibosheth. David is going to keep his word, keep his promise, keep this agreement, and honor this covenant by showing steadfast love to Mephibosheth. And what we find in David showing steadfast love to Mephibosheth is a greater picture, gives us a greater picture of God's kindness to the people of his own son, Jesus Christ. Now I want you to see, secondly, rooted in this covenant, not only is David's covenant with Jonathan, but also David's compassion for Jonathan. David genuinely loved Jonathan just as Jonathan genuinely loved David in their friendship. Now, notice what David specifically wants to show any remaining descendant of Jonathan in verse 1. He says in verse 1, Is there still anyone left of the house of Saul that I may show him kindness for Jonathan's sake? Now, this kindness is a Hebrew word that refers to a loving kindness, a steadfast love, grace, mercy, faithfulness, goodness, devotion, any of those can be applied to this word kindness. In fact, you'll find that same word is translated in other areas as one of these words. It also involves a lasting loyalty and faithfulness. This kindness that David is talking about is the same word used to express the kindness that God has, the steadfast love that God has towards his own people. Now we read of this in Exodus Chapter 34, verse 6 through 7, where the Lord is speaking to Moses. And you see description of the character of God here. The Lord passed before him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. Same word used here for David's kindness. And faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin but who will, not by, who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generations. You see, God, while he is just and holy and executes his righteous justice on wicked sinners, at the same time, he is gracious and merciful to pardon his people from their sins. You see, this pardon that we receive, it flows from His grace. This pardon that anyone could ever receive, it flows from grace, which means that it is undeserved, 
and it is unmerited, it cannot be earned. It's not something you can accomplish. It's not something you can perform in yourself. You see, the one who has power to show kindness is the one who has authority to do so. So in the days of David, who has the power and authority to show a kindness to anyone that exceeds any other kindness one could give? Only the king, right? Now who alone has the authority and ability and power to show a kindness to sinners such as you and I that exceeds any other? Only God. Only God can do such a thing. So David is going to honor his covenant with Jonathan to show this kindness, this grace to his heir, because David has the authority to do so. And when we think about it in the realm of our own life as Christians, the only one who has authority and power and the capability of showing grace and kindness to an unworthy, sinful humanity is the one true living God. And it is only in his grace alone that he does this. Friend, grace alone is in the character of God. It's an expression of who he is. You see, we know nothing of grace except in the one true living God because there's none like him. He alone manifests kindness to us beyond any that any other could give. And so David references this kindness David references this kindness of God, he says. That's what he labels this as, as the kindness of God he wants to show. And friend, this covenant, it reveals to us a broader picture of God's grace to sinners. Just as David's covenant to Jonathan's heir is only rooted in his covenant with Jonathan and compassion for Jonathan, you understand that God's grace is extended to his people Only in his own son, Jesus Christ. Not without connection to any other. There is no grace outside of Jesus. There is no grace outside of the one true savior of sinners like us. And you understand that long ago in eternity past, a covenant was made between the Godhead to save a sinful people through the blood atonement of Jesus Christ. Friend, this is where we see this grander picture of a covenant in which it is fulfilled by God the Father and God the Son and God the Holy Spirit. We read of God's, or excuse me, Christ's high priestly prayer as he prays hours before he goes to the cross. But one of these scriptures in John 17, he says, I have manifested, he's praying to the Father and says, I have manifested your name to the people whom you gave me out of the world. Yours they were, and you gave them to me, and they have kept your word. If you want a further explanation of this, go with me, if you would, to Ephesians chapter 1 for a moment. Let us read verse 3 through verse 6. Ephesians chapter 1, and notice the grand scheme here of redemption and what God has done in His grace alone for us. Ephesians chapter 1 and verse 3 through 6 tells us this, Blessed Be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Now just pause and think about that, Christian. He's blessed us as Christians, those in Christ, with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. 
In verse 4 he says, Even as He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before Him in love, He predestined us for adoption to Himself as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of His will, to the praise of His glorious grace with which He has blessed us in the Beloved. Friend, I read that passage, and it's almost hard to wrap my mind around it, but it's true. That God has saved us. That this was His eternal plan to redeem a people through His Son, Jesus Christ. That is the covenant of redemption, friend. You see, this glorious expression of grace to those in Christ is an eternal covenant. Now, some may think they deserve such salvation as a reward Some may think that they can earn it, but man, friend, may I say to you this, if you think that way, it is no longer grace. If you think you have anything to do with becoming right with God and being saved and going to heaven and and having redemption, understand, if you think that that in any way measures in yourself, then it is no longer grace. Grace is undeserved. Grace is unmerited. And that is what we find with Mephibosheth. Mephibosheth does not deserve and cannot earn what he is receiving here. But to know why David's kindness to Jonathan's heir is so great, we must understand the truth about Mephibosheth. And the same applies to us. To know how wonderful the grace of God is, we must know the truth about ourselves. Which brings me to number two in our notes here this morning. Our second heading, we see the position of Mephibosheth. The position of Mephibosheth. And what is his position? What do we see about him? And I want to give you three quick things that we see that describe Mephibosheth in this account, in this narrative. Notice number one is that he was incapable physically of helping himself. He was an incapable man. He was was limited. Now, how does Scripture describe Mephibosheth? In verse 3 we find that he is crippled in his feet, which means that he couldn't walk. He didn't walk. He didn't have good medical attention. They didn't have like they have nowadays where you've got all sorts of things to help people who, who are in need with those, those sorts of conditions. But we think about Mephibosheth. He's in a position here where he was limited. He needed the help and aid of others. This is a position that he could not escape. He could not change who he was or how his life was. But did you know there was a time when he wasn't always crippled on his feet either? His incapable position was caused at a specific moment in his life, a moment in which a great fall took place. You see, when Saul's son, Ishbosheth, who was temporarily king over Israel while David was in Judah, had been killed, this caused a great panic for all the house of Saul. And we read that the nurse who was watching over Mephibosheth, at the time of this panic, tried to flee with Mephibosheth as a young child, and she dropped him, changing his life forever. If you want to read it, look at 2 Samuel 4 and verse 4, just backwards, a couple pages in your Bible, a couple chapters. You look at 2 Samuel chapter 4 and verse 4 and read, look at what we see here. Jonathan, the son of Saul, had a son who was crippled in his feet. He was five years old when the news came about Saul and Jonathan came from Jezreel. And his nurse took him up and fled, and she fled in her haste, and he fell and became lame 
and his name was Mephibosheth. From that day forward, Mephibosheth's life was changed forever. And it wasn't for the better. He became incapable physically. Now, in this narrative, we see a picture that applies really to all of us. Do we not recall a great fall that crippled humanity? Not physically, but spiritually. Do we recall a fall that that put us into a position and a condition that makes us incapable of helping ourselves when it comes to being right with God? Do we know that this fall put us in a position in which it brought condemnation to us all? Friend, this fall was none other than the fall of our first parents in the human race, Adam and Eve. And their fall came about as a direct disobedience to their holy creator. And by their fall, the entirety of humanity is spiritually crippled. Now, Paul says in Romans 5 and verse number 12, as he describes this fall, he says, Therefore, as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, so death spread to all men because all have sinned. You understand that sin permeates every man in every facet of man. Our mind, our body, our will, our soul, it has been tainted and corrupted with sin. It has plunged us into darkness. It has put us into an incapable position spiritually. We're unable to fix it ourselves. We're incapable of getting rid of it. The writer of Proverbs tells us in Proverbs 20 and verse 9, Who can say, I have made my heart pure, I am clean from my sin? Who can say that in this world? Who can say, I have cleansed myself of my sin? Who can say, I have eliminated my my fallen nature? Can any one of us say such a thing? The answer is no. Now, man around us in the world, he likes to think that he can and likes to come up with ways in which he thinks that he'll get right with God. But understand, all of them are futile and pointless. We're trapped. We're stuck. We are fallen. So many have thought they can somehow fix their sin problem with religion, with good works, maybe some charitable giving, maybe getting baptized, maybe joining the church. Believe it or not, there are many in this world who think that they are good with God and on their way to heaven because of one of these things. And my prayer is that if you're in this room and you think that, that you will come to see the truth, that that's not going to help you. I pray that you'll see this, that God will open your eyes to see this. Job himself said this in Job 9 and verse 20, Though I am in the right, my own mouth would condemn me. Though I am blameless, he would, repro- he would prove me perverse. You see, we may think that we are all right with God, but God is not all right with us. There's a difference. There's a difference there, friend. Religious works are man's own effort to rise to the standard of God. But you understand that man cannot meet God's standard. Why? His standard is infinitely higher than what we can attain. His holiness and righteousness, it exceeds what our minds can even fathom in this world. We can never come to attain his standard. I was reading a little story. There was a little boy who walked into the kitchen. He told his mother, 
that he discovered that he was six feet tall. He's just a little boy, probably David's age. And when he asked how he had determined this, he told her, I used my shoe to measure and that I was six shoes tall. With a loving smile, his mother looked at him and insisted that that's not the right measurement of what a foot is. Your foot does not equal a true foot, the right foot. But he insisted, but mom, it's got to be because my foot fits in it, right? There's a lot of people that think that way, that if I can just create my own standard that I think is God's standard, then, then I'll be okay, then I'll just be all right. But you understand that, that we as sinners, we're incapable spiritually of helping ourselves. Mephibosheth here, he's incapable of helping himself. He could do nothing to fix his fall, and neither can we. Which brings us to another point here. Not only was he in, incapable physically, he was impoverished materially. He was impoverished materially. Now, David asks an important question in verse 4. Look at verse 4. What does he say? He says, where is he? Now, David knows that there's a remaining heir. He asks this question. And even knowing, that, even knowing this, even knowing that he's crippled and could do nothing for David, he still wants to know where is he at? Where is he? And in verse 4, what do we learn? Mephibosheth was dwelling in a place called Lodibar. Now, we don't hear much of this place in Scripture. It's not quoted very often. It's not referenced very often. Not a lot said. It's a town in Gilead. Uh, it's mentioned in one of Amos' oracles of judgment. If you look at Amos 6 and verse 13, it's only mentioned in Scripture a few times. But the Hebrew word here for Lodibar, lo, which means nothing, not, without... It's a lowly place. Easton's Bible Dictionary refers to Lodibar as no pasture, meaning it's not much there. Now, in that day and time, pasture was important because livestock was important. Livestock was a measurement of your wealth and prosperity in Bible times. How much livestock and wealth do you think Mephibosheth has if he's living in a place of no pasture? None at all. Not much. What does this show us? It shows us that Mephibosheth has nothing to offer David. He has nothing to offer David. He dwells in a place of little worth and has nothing of worth to offer anyone, especially King David. Now, when we think about us in, the, in, in a spiritual sense, do you know that we as humans are in the same position? We dwell in a low place. A place cursed by sin, filled with wickedness. We live in a place not created by us and not owned by us. You and I have nothing to offer God. Nothing. The world and its system thinks it's powerful and wealthy, but to the Lord it's nothing. You know why? Because the Lord already owns everything. He created everything. Everything that you think you own, it actually belongs to Christ. It was given to you by him. Psalm 24.1 tells us the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, the world and those that dwell therein. So there's, there's nothing this earth can offer God. There's nothing that we can offer God. And so in our sin, we are destitute and desperate. We are but the dust of the earth only to return to the dust of the earth. Just like Mephibosheth, we're in a land of no pasture. Nothing to offer and nothing to claim. We find thirdly, letter C, Mephibosheth, he was isolated culturally. 
isolated culturally. Now, not many people would pick Lodibar as a place to live out the rest of their days. Not a good retirement spot. It was a place separated from others. And Mephibosheth seems to have isolated himself there for good reason. As mentioned before, what did we learn? That it was often the custom of kings to eliminate any heirs of former kings who would rival the throne. The grandfather of Mephibosheth, King Saul, sought to kill the present king. We read that in 1 Samuel 19 and verse 1. So could David have sought vengeance on Saul's descendants? Sure. He had the right to. So Mephibosheth is isolated for the sake of his life. He deserves death in that culture. As we look at his life, it's shameful. A shameful position. And you'll find that even the very name Mephibosheth, you know, throughout the scriptures, names mean things. The name Mephibosheth means dispeller of shame. Dispeller of shame. What a picture that is of humanity. We're dispellers of shame. That's that's what we've wrought in our sinfulness. I mean, put us, sinful man, next to the holy creator, the true God and king over everything. And what do we see? We are dispellers of shame. We're descendants of the one who turned his back on God and became an enemy, Adam. In fact, Scripture tells us that before we came to Christ, outside of Christ, what are we? We are enemies of the holy living God. We're enemies of him. Romans 5.10 tells us, For if while we were enemies, that's what we were before we came to salvation, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more now being reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. You know what reconciliation is, right? It's the bringing back and together we were at odds against God. But now in Christ, we're brought into fellowship. Friendship and communion with God. This, friend, is what grace has done in the life of sinful men. Grace of God. Mephibosheth's position and man's position are pictured together. We are incapable, impoverished, and isolated. What hope do we have? What hope do we have for us as sinners? There's only one hope we have, and it comes from grace and grace alone. Without grace, there is no hope. Without grace, there is no salvation, which brings me to number three. And this is where you'll see the the final driving point home. We see the privilege of Mephibosheth. What is his privilege? What is it that he experiences here? And I, I just love how this is portrayed. I want you to see three things very quickly that the king does here for Mephibosheth. The first one is this, is that the king sought him. The king sought him. The king went seeking for him. He sent his men after Mephibosheth. In verse 5, after the king learns that he's in Lodibar, the Bible says he sent and brought him. Now imagine for a moment Mephibosheth dwelling in Lodibar, thinking the rest of his days will pretty much just be painful, impoverished, and not really amount to much. He thinks surely the king won't find him here. Little did Mephibosheth know that David is seeking out him specifically to show kindness to him. To show kindness. Something totally opposite of what Mephibosheth would have thought. Kindness to him. 
Imagine uh, for a moment Mephibosheth one day dwelling out there in Lodibar and then on the horizon comes the king's ambassadors, those representing David on his horses and he's thinking, oh no, he's trapped me, he's found me, what's he going to do? How's this going to turn out? Friend, you understand that Mephibosheth here is is a picture of, of God seeking out his people and bringing them to himself. Mephibosheth was not seeking the king, but the king was seeking him. Friend, this brings to the forefront of the reality that lost sinful men, they do not seek after God. They just don't. But you understand that God is seeking out his people, his sheep. And he's going to find them. Paul said this in Romans 3.11, No one understands and no one seeks for God. Now it appears that there's many seekers in this world. Some seek for the sake of their own carnal benefit. They want Christ for what he can give them, not for who he is. That's not genuine seeking. But then you see others who came to church and maybe they came to know Christ. Weren't they seeking? Let me read a description from Charles Spurgeon I thought was fitting. Spurgeon says, well can I remember the manner in which I learned the doctrines of grace in a single instant. Born, all of us are by nature an Arminian. I still believed the old things I had heard continually from the pulpit and did not see the grace of God. When I was coming to Christ, I thought I was doing it all myself. And though I sought the Lord earnestly, I had no idea that the Lord was seeking me. I do not think the young convert is at first aware of this. The thought struck me. How did you come to be a Christian? I sought the Lord. But how did you come to seek the Lord? The truth flashed across my mind in a moment. I should not have sought him unless there had been some previous influence in my mind to make me seek him. I prayed, thought I. But then I asked myself, how came I to pray? I was induced to pray by reading the scriptures. How came I to read the scriptures? I did read them, but what led me to do so? Then in a moment, I saw that God was at the bottom of it all and that he was the author of my faith, and so the whole doctrine of grace opened up to me, and from that doctrine I have not departed to this day, and I desire to make this my constant confession. I ascribe my change wholly to God. Any and all who come to Christ are first sought by him. And what a joy that is to know. Friend, God in his grace seeks the unworthy sinner who has been purchased by his son on the cross. Luke 19 and verse 10, Jesus said, For the Son of Man has come to seek and save the lost. Understand that God does not seek and then fail to save. He accomplishes both by his grace. He does them both. He does not leave his sheep out in the wilderness. He brings them in unto himself. He leaves the 99 until he finds that one and brings it home. And David here, as he seeks out Mephibosheth, shows us a picture of that, that he is the king, he has the authority, and he brings Mephibosheth to where he is. What do we find happens with this? As Mephibosheth is brought in, notice his reactions in verse 6. He fell on his faith and paid homage. He's without doubt, filled with fear and bows himself before the king. He says to David, behold, I am your servant. 
Mephibosheth is probably just waiting for something terrible to happen to him. But imagine Mephibosheth's heart and mind as he hears the words come out of David's mouth. In verse 7, what does David say to him? David said to him, Do not fear, for I will show you kindness for the sake of your father Jonathan, and I will restore you all the land of Saul your father, and you shall eat at my table always. Now this is where grace just just penetrates my heart. We look at what Mephibosheth Mephibosheth says in verse 8. Here's his response to the king and what the king says is going to happen with him. He says, what is your servant that you should show regard for a dead dog such as I? What a description. This is how Mephibosheth views himself. He understands that he's not worthy of any blessing of David. He's not worthy of any uh, kind of privilege. He's not worthy to even be there in his presence. And so he asks David, why would you show regard for a dead dog such as I? He doesn't hide who he is. He owns up to it. Who were we before the king summoned us? What does scripture say of us? Paul said to the Ephesians in Ephesians 2.1, you were dead in your trespasses and in your sins. That's who I was, friend. So were you. And the only reason you're brought to life and come to the presence of the king is all because of grace. That's it. Grace alone. It is only his grace. So if you're saved today, friend, do you remember when you had this realization, when you saw God's exalted nature and his holiness, your sinfulness and condemnation, and that salvation was in Christ alone? Do you remember this? I do. I was only seven years old when God saved me. And I think back, I I look at the sovereignty of God in grace. What can a seven-year-old do? Seven-year-olds are smart, but my goodness, we are are incapable of doing anything spiritually of ourselves. God drew me and brought me to himself. I claim nothing of it. And neither can you. We can claim nothing of our salvation. Which brings us to letter B, the king, he saved him. The king sought him and the king saved him. And notice this is the pivotal point of the story. The only reason that David has sought out this poor, lame man is because of one thing. What's the one thing that connects this man to David? It's his connection with Jonathan. It's his connection with Jonathan. Is there not still anyone left of the house of Saul that I may show him kindness? Why? For Jonathan's sake. It has nothing to do with the connection between Mephibosheth and David, but everything to do with Jonathan and David. And you understand that without Jonathan, there is no kindness, there is no grace extended to Mephibosheth. And in the same way, understand this, that God's grace, his measureless favor upon sinful people, it is only, it is only because of Jesus. It is only in Christ that we are recipients of such grace. I want to read this final passage. I know I'm going a little over, a little overboard. Try to bear with me. Titus chapter 3 and verse 3 through 7. Go go there with me and let me read it for a moment. Titus chapter 3 and verse 3 through 7. And notice this. 
Paul gives out the big picture here in a short form. He says, for we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. That's a bad description. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, He saved us. Not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to His own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom He poured out on us richly through who? Through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that being justified by His grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. That's it in a nutshell. Who we were and how Christ has saved us, how God has saved us. Friend, we ourselves were once wicked, and the goodness of God and loving kindness of God appeared, not because of works done by us, but only through Jesus Christ, our Savior. We're justified by His grace and become heirs. And friend, this is salvation. This is God's grace. We are made partakers of God's grace through Christ alone. And it is through Christ alone and the work of His Spirit that we come to believe on Him. As Jonathan Edwards rightly said, no promise of the covenant of grace belongs to any man till he has first believed in Christ. Notice lastly this morning that the king sustained him. We think about Mephibosheth. Not only is he saved, he's sought out and saved by the king, but now he's sustained by the king for his life. In verse 11, what do we read? The Bible tells us Mephibosheth ate at David's table like one of the king's sons. Think about that. Like one of the king's sons. What a privilege. What, what, a, what, a, what a measureless blessing upon him. We read it again in verse 13. Mephibosheth lived in Jerusalem. He ate always at the king's table. And friend, the truth is, is that all who are in Christ as believers, you and I are given an eternal position and pleasure that is beyond what you and I realize at this moment. We read in Ephesians 2 and verse 4 through 7, God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. Beloved, what a wonder it is to be a son of the living God. Become a child of the living God, a child of the King. And the only reason that you're a child of the King today is because of grace. You can't claim anything about it. It's by grace and grace alone. That's the picture we see with David and with Mephibosheth. The king sought out this poor, unworthy man who could do nothing to help himself brought him to a place where his life was entirely changed. And friend, that is exactly what Jesus has done for us. Today, I pray and hope 
that you know this grace that I'm talking about. That you have believed on Christ and you know in your heart that grace has reached you. I pray that today is the day, if you have not known that, that you would see, your, your eyes would be opened and you would see and trust and believe in Christ. That you would know for certain that you've been born again of His Spirit. And Christian, if you know you're saved today, take time to think and meditate on how deep the grace of God is towards you. It ought to stir your soul. Let it not become stale in your life. May it be a fire and fervor in you that every day you thank God for His grace that He's bestowed upon you. Let's stand to our feet and we'll have a closing song this morning as Brother Ron comes and, and leads us as we sing one final verse.